this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. My name is Sarah Patterson, and I'm one of the hosts here on this channel. Today, we will be talking to Stephen Pimper about his book, Ghettos, Tramps, and Welfare Queens, Down and Out on the Silver Screen. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you, Sarah. Nice to be here. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. My name is Sarah Patterson, and I'm one of the hosts here on this channel. Today, we will be talking to Stephen Pimper about his book, Ghettos, Tramps, and Welfare Queens, Down and Out on the Silver Screen. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you, Sarah. Nice to be here. So to get us started, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, sure. So I'm... Uh... Currently a senior lecturer in American politics and public policy at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, prior to that, I lived for about 30 years in New York City, and just under half of that was actually as a practitioner rather than an academic. I worked uh, in a number of different programs, working with soup kitchens, food pro pantries, uh, and emergency feeding programs in homeless shelters, uh, and had you know something of a career as a practitioner before I even thought of going off to, to graduate school. And I did that um, not to become a teacher and not to become an academic, but because in part um, I was, you know, working on the front lines in the 1990s as welfare reform debates were heating up and was struck by this disconnect between the actual humans who I was meeting in those mm -hmm. programs and, and my experience of them and the sort of public rhetoric that I was hearing about them. And I felt like, I couldn't make sense of that, and I didn't know what was going on, and thought that maybe going back to school was the answer. I think it remains to be seen whether that really was the answer or not, and whether I've I've gained any deeper understanding. But but I like to think that I have, and that uh, sort of the work that I've done since, sort of more on the academic side, has has found ways to sort of feed back out into that world of practice. Uh, so that that sort of some of the questions that I had and that others might have now uh, have at least some insight on. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thank you for that. Um, so we'll go ahead and get right into your book. So as a sociologist, the thing I picked up most on, and feel free to elaborate on other parts, is this idea of the depiction of um, poverty and homelessness and why they're depicted the way they are. So sort of, uh, you can give a nod to Herbert, Herbert Gons. Um, and also this this idea that what is the definition of poor and how are we portraying it? So I was wondering if you could sort of set the stage for your book for us. Well, I mean, I talk about sort of, of the, the, the trouble I had coming up with a working definition of poverty for the purposes of ruling films in and out for consideration under the, in, in the book. There are mm -hmm. ultimately just under 300 that I wind up identifying over the course of American cinema as being, uh, in some non-trivial way about poverty or homelessness. Some of that is really easy if, if, you know, somebody is homeless living under under a bridge or on the street or living in a homeless shelter. Uh, they are, are homeless, I would say, by pretty much anybody's standards. I included uh, any films, and there aren't a lot of them, honestly, that depicted people uh, receiving food stamps or other social welfare programs, uh, obviously movies in the 30s that focus intensely on the Depression wind up being included. But the kinds of... of Ways we have of identifying and, and defining poverty across the social sciences wind up not being terribly useful, right? Because part of those tend to be income definitions and we don't tend to have, you know, comprehensive, we don't have tax returns for movie characters that I can look through in order to see what their ultimate annual income uh, winds up being. So it winds up being 
what I hope is a, a de- defensible method that I use to rule movies in and out, but one that I think uh, reasonable people could disagree about. Um, there was a second part of your question, and I have already forgotten. Oh it. yeah, no worries. So, <laughs> so kind of you know, I, I mean, you sort of touched on it that this this idea of why do we depict them this way, you know? You know, I mean, I think that's a hard question in some ways. The ultimate takeaway I, I come away with is that. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, but Hollywood doesn't do an especially good job of offering what I would identify as authentic portrayals of the lived experience of poverty and homelessness on film. And I make those judgments both as a social scientist and I make those judgments also as someone who has done an awful lot of work with poor and homeless people themselves. Hollywood does a pretty bad job of giving us recognizable three-dimensional portraits of of those kinds of people on the one hand you know that that in some ways is a is a so what sort of statement because we could go through a long list of kinds of people and circumstances and histories that hollywood doesn't especially do an especially good job of portraying portraying accurately or authentically um but i think that there there's there's sort of something distinct about what happens with portrayals of of poverty, and we can uh, talk down the road about sort of the patterns that I find, but I think a lot of what's going on there is simply um, for what are perhaps obvious reasons, there are not a whole lot of poor and homeless people involved in the making of movies. Um, you can you can be poor or homeless and write poetry and write a novel, and maybe if you're lucky, get its find its way to a publisher, but. The, the the sort of the capital that's required to produce a movie and to distribute it almost inevitably excludes people that I'm interested in from being centrally involved in the process. So what we almost inescapably wind up with are these second or third or fourth hand uh, impressions, images, portrayals of, of those populations. And they tend to be based not therefore on direct deep experience, but on what people think they know from what sort of hovers around us in the popular culture. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thank you um, for sort of setting that up for us. So let's go ahead and get into it. So at the very beginning of the book, you start in the city. And uh, what I liked about this was um, how you picked up on like social distance and how social distance is portrayed in movies about poverty and homelessness. So I was wondering if you could get into that a little bit more. Well, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I start out mostly looking at uh, early Hollywood movies. We're talking early turn of the century, so starting around 1905. And, you know, it's 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 interesting in a lot of ways, I think, in part because a lot of these films, and we're talking often, you know, short black and white 10, 15 minute uh, movies. Um, remember that, that the movie business started out in New York initially uh, before it moved out west in part because uh, they were looking for uh, better sunlight, uh, greater access to a diversity of, of landscapes to fill in and places with uh, less by way of a labor movement. So it was easier to exploit the workers who were going to make the movies. Uh, so you've got a lot of, of short films set on the Lower East Side of... Manhattan in particular looking at sort of immigrant communities and some of them is the same kind of prurient gaze you might expect um, in other kinds of slumming the the sort of the the you know the lingering on the landscape to look at the exotic immigrant characters but you've also got a lot of of social commentary that I think reflects a lot of the debates that were going on in the period about not just distance between classes but the fear that the city itself was creating unstable and dangerous conditions. The idea that that there's something unique about the city and that, you know, we often think about the proximity of people in the city as the kind of, of thing that creates cosmopolitanism, the things that makes it possible for us to relate to other people. But there was this real fear that this this dense concentration of different peoples in one place was going to corrupt the upper classes, corrupt the, the so-called genuine Americans. So you get this this frequent effort to try to make sense of what's going on in those exotic locales peopled with others. 
And, you know, I don't want to take this too far, but I think a lot of those portrayals wind up being pretty sympathetic or at least pretty empathetic. This this sense that uh, there's there's an awful lot of folks who are being uh, exploited by the the sort of the emerging industrial system and taken advantage by unscrupulous landlords and an awful lot of of uh, children without uh, without great uh, opportunity and hope for upward mobility. So this real sense that that there's a problem there that needs addressing. The last thing I'll say about that is that I think what what becomes interesting, um, and again this in some ways reflects an awful lot of the. Uh, the, the the sort of the social science literature and the debates taking place at the time, the remedy to this was often to remove people from the city. Uh, that it was the city itself that was this dangerous, corrupting influence. And the way to do this is to take children and send them out west, right? So we get things like Charles Loring Brace's uh, orphan trains, right, that started in the late 19th century. We see an awful lot of that pop up in these movies, this uh, idealization of the countryside often portrayed in juxtaposition to the city and the sense that that's going to be our salvation. Yeah. So sort of like tying in the city, um, you, you move on to this portrayal of crime and poverty um, and how, you know, gangs mm-hmm. and the ghetto are sort of tied together. And I think you see this a lot in, uh, you know, portrayals of of poverty is this intimate tie to crime and um and so i was wondering if you could talk more about that um so that's you know that first chapter is focused almost exclusively on on uh the early era of film and those those films set in in big cities and we see a lot of uh gangs you know if you know anything about the bowery boys movies and that sort of stuff you've got this very long series of mostly sort of kids in brooklyn who get into usually low-grade trouble uh, but wind up being rescued in one form or another. Um, we flash forward to the ways in which we see what that urban poverty among young men in particular looks like, uh, say, it's starting in the 1980s and 1990s. We see a couple of changes. One is, of course, that instead of looking at white ethnics, uh, we are looking almost exclusively at African-Americans by the time we get to the 80s and 90s, and we've moved a lot from New York off to Los Angeles. Um, and those portrayals, and there are certainly exemptions to be noted there, but those portrayals, in my mind, are significantly less sympathetic by the time we get to that later period. And I think that um, that sort of long-standing conflation of criminality with blackness, right? And this is something that uh, Kahil Muhammad talks about uh, in his book about the, the earlier period. Um, I think that really comes into stark focus in this period and that you've got these young black men in these burnt out, desolated, hopeless landscapes who are almost always almost inherently violent and dangerous. And there are exceptions and they tend to be disproportionately when black filmmakers are involved, but that kind of, that empathy, that sympathy, that sense that, you know, they're just kids and it's not their fault. It's the environment, it's the nature of the city itself that's causing the harm that tends to fade away. And we see this much more sort of ugly racialized image of, of the city as this, hopeless place that you should be afraid of and what you should most wind up being afraid of is those black bodies. I think that becomes particularly interesting. I mean, I I spent the better part of my adult life in New York during the Trump years when he was just a a real estate mogul and often the butt of jokes for New Yorkers. But it seems to me hearing him talk about crime, and he tends to get it pretty wrong, right? He tends not to know the most basic facts about what's happened to rates of violent crime since the 1990s. It seems to me that in some ways Trump saw those movies in the 70s and 80s, and that's the image that he has of what goes on in this city. And it, of course, reinforces a lot of the sort of the racist instincts that he has. And I do, I mean, I really do wonder how much of those sorts of movies are playing in the back of his head or those images of New York in the the 70s and 80s are are stuck in his mind and he has not evolved beyond them. And that's how he continues to make sense of the world. Yeah. Well, well, one of the thing, one of the words that you use in your book is the urban hellscape. And I thought that that was a really powerful way to describe that. 
And that's, you know, if you think, I mean, I don't talk about taxi driver because it's not really about poverty, but that's sort of the, the epitome of those kinds of movies, right? That, that, you know, and I guess Escape from New York would be another one, right? Where literally it's so bad that you have to wall off the city and abandon it. So then you move in your book to sort of talking about, um, you know, you start out with the city and, and the tie to crime and the urban hellscape. Um, and then you move on to sort of the people that are in the city. And the first group that you um, talk about here are, are social workers and charity reformers. Yeah. And I thought that this was really interesting, uh, tying it back to something we'll talk about here at the end of the book. But this is one of the few times that women have portrayals in the movie, in movies. And it's really interesting because the social uh, workers are often seen as the villain or, or, the, or the bad guy. Um, and so I was hoping you could talk more about that. Um, it is it is fascinating. This is you know, not just the movies. This was, you know, social work starting in the late 19th century really was one of those few occupations that were available to women who had ambition um, and were certainly centrally involved in a lot of the progressive era reform efforts that those early movies especially are concerned with. Um, but by and large, if you run across a social worker in the movies – she is not going to make things better. She is going to make things worse. Um, and is more often than not a nosy, bitty, busybody who is not especially well informed of the, the material constraints of people living in those circumstances, is not um, interested necessarily in finding opportunities to make people's lives better, but is there to be a a judge and a scold in order to lecture people and to turn up her nose at their behavior and their bad parenting techniques. Um, this is a very old critique of social work itself. And a lot of the, you know, practice work I've done has been in social work. And a lot of the teaching that I continue to do uh, is in social work. So even though I, I don't actually have an MSW, I do, you know, lots of ways identify as a social worker. Um, you know, my people do not fare well in the movies. We are typically uh, the root of the problem. And, you know, what's fascinating to me is that that's, as I said, a longstanding radical critique of the social work profession, right? That it's too interested in uh, bureaucratic paper shuffling and doing the will of whatever particular local bureaucracy is at work rather than finding ways to act as allies for poor and low-income people and help them navigate an often impenetrable system. This is one of the very, very few instances in the movies where I actually see that kind of radical leftist critique adopted by the movies. I mean, otherwise, I think it's mostly fairly conservative in the way that it understands poor and low-income people. It blames them for their state rather than thinking about structural or social conditions. But this weirdly is one of those exceptions and I'll be honest and say I'm not entirely sure that I've, I've arrived at a satisfying explanation as to why that is, except to go back to where you started, um, that this is one of those few places in which women are central to the story. And I wonder if this is as much about misogyny as it is about anything else. Um, the other thing, just to sort of highlight on that regard, is that in the early, uh, early movies, we do find male social workers, uh, and they are almost always exceedingly effeminate. They are they are meant to be indicated as gay characters, uh, and that is definitely meant to be a negative judgment on them. Um, so I do wonder sort of what kind of gender dynamics are playing out in the ways in which um, social workers uh, appear in this particular regard. But it's fascinating and depressing. Right, right. As is most sociology, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... So, so the other side of, of social workers are often, uh, you know, this, oh, the welfare queen, which I have seen a resurgence in, um, you know, Facebook posts about welfare queens and all this kind of stuff. So yeah. I was hoping you could talk about that and sort of the tie I thought you made to the birth of a nation was really interesting. So I was hoping you could elaborate mm -hmm. a little bit more on that. So, I mean, one of the, the, the point I, I, I talk about birth of the nation, which is, of course, the... Um, the movie made by D.W. Griffith and essentially pro-Klan propaganda when all is said and done. Um, I talk about that in the context of Pression, uh, a movie made uh, by black producers and filmmakers based on a woman by uh, a novel by an African-American author, but is to my mind one of the 
uh, ugliest bits of uh, racist propaganda you're likely to encounter on film. And part of what sort of exercises me so much about that movie is that it was the, it did reasonably well by, you know, independent box office standards and was, I think, the most extended encounter that an awful lot of people are going to have with uh, people on welfare living in Harlem in the 1980s. And that movie gives us every ugly stereotype that you are likely to encounter about welfare and the people who come to depend on it. And it seems to me that those those ideas are so deeply rooted that it doesn't even occur to us to, that we don't really note them and we're not even troubled by them. At, at, you know, first, one of the early screenings of Birth of the Nation, the NAACP, which, you know, of course, already existed by the time, uh, excoriated the movie and there was lots of, of widespread negative press about it. Uh, for my money, there was not an awful lot of that about Precious. And I think an awful lot of it focused on what were... I would agree, really terrific performances on behalf of Monique and Gabori Sidibe and others, uh, but really little by way of critique about just how much the filmmakers have bought into this long. I mean, you know, we have to go back, what, probably Reagan in the 1960s uh, and the creation of the welfare queen. They have a notion that, that you know, there is this, this dependent population leeching off the public teeth and that's the explanation for you, white working class, why you're not doing so well, right? This was always an explicitly racist appeal to see this adopted by African-American filmmakers and to see it so widely celebrated and lauded. Um, you, know, you know, I don't I don't know that it, that it offers any particular insight into this particular moment, but I do think that it helps explain for people who need explanations why we're seeing you know, resurgence of neo-Nazis in the Klan, and you've got a white supremacist and his allies in the White House. I think some of it is that so much of this racist framing about government has been so deeply, what, suffused into the way in which we think about our politics that that helped... I think that helped us get to this particular moment. I think these are not trivial kinds of things when the culture is so suffused with this kind of sort of single-sided image of a particular population group. And that image was created in order to serve political purposes. I think, I think that's dangerous. I think that's one of the ways in which movies really do matter in ways that I think sometimes we as social scientists don't, we don't fully appreciate. And part of why we don't fully appreciate it is, of course, you know, getting, uh, identifying methods to say that with a little bit more empirical rigor than I have is always a thorny, difficult kind of thing. So then another um, set of people that you talk about in the book and in their portrayal in the movies are teachers. And I thought that this was really interesting because, I mean, I know multiple people who find Stand and Deliver to be motivational and the story behind it. But what really struck me is what you say on page 96, where what most of these movies are articulating is that what's missing most from children's lives is just inspiration and motivation, that, that that's all they really need to sort of keep going. And so I was hoping you could talk more about that. And, you know, and that's another place where I think that, you know, sort of the pattern that I identify in these movies, right. It's, it's, uh, the, the more likely to be the white teacher coming to the rescue of the, the poor black and brown children, uh, in an inner city school. There are some exceptions there, stand and deliver being one of them. Um, but this is one of the ways in which I think we sort of see the, the, the popular policy and political debate around these issues reflected in the movies. I mean, this is, you know, very much the, the ethos of a lot of, of modern education. And again, if we sort of look at folks like Bessie DeVos, the new, uh, uh, Secretary of Education, we see this, this notion that, that what we need to improve schools is simply better teachers, right? That the problem is rooted not enough well-trained, experienced teachers, 
uh, who need to come in, and what they need to do is to, to, to find that one special trick, and this is a pattern that pops up over and over and over again in all of these movies, right? Is that What is it that this one particular teacher is going to figure out to do in order to motivate this particular group of students, and once they figure that out, the light goes on, and then you typically get the montage of the students learning and growing and being engaged with inspirational music in the background, as if that is all that is in the way of poor and low-income people in depressed neighborhoods that have suffered decades' worth of disinvestment. That's all they need, right? It's all contained within them. If they only wanted it badly enough, they could rise above their circumstances and and right get a good education and go on to 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 exceed the the state of their parents and that again it's a place that i think it's i think it's dangerous that we tell that story over and over again i think it's pernicious because it really does reinforce this notion that that poverty is people's fault right that it's not the place they live it's not the quality of their air it's not the quality of their schools it's not the employment opportunities that are available to them it's not racial discrimination in the labor market it's not the exceedingly long list that you or i as sociologists or political scientists could make to try to make sense of what goes on in these disinvested neighborhoods it's it's none of that right this says it's people it's people who are irresponsible or insufficiently motivated and if they would alter that well, everything would be different. It becomes, of course, an argument for government not intervening, right? There's no point in having a welfare state. There's no point in investing in good quality public education. There's no point in doing any of the things that might uh, mitigate against some of those circumstances because what we really need is people to stop behaving so badly, right? It's the, it's the same sort of trope of the welfare queen. It just plays out in this entirely different set of movies, but seems to me that it sort of continues to reinforce this message that poverty is at heart behavioral. It's your own damn fault. Well, and, and sort of you, you kind of move on from that in the next chapter because you, as a social scientist, know that there are structural factors that are also influencing poverty. And so you touch on the architecture of poverty. Um, and I thought that this was really interesting, especially given recent um, unfortunate events at the Grenfell Tower that burned. Um, and so I, I was hoping you could talk more about the architecture of poverty. You know, and part of what... Um, that chapter is trying to do is to pull out a set of movies that I think are a little bit more aware of place and space uh, than is typically the case. So, so the earliest one is a movie called One Third of a Nation, 1939. Um, uh, more, you've got a tree grows in Brooklyn, right? That really is about that particular neighborhood. Um, movie called The Architect, which is sort of fascinating based on a play, but is about a Chicago housing project and winds up being this sort of debate between the architect himself who thought he was creating this 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 wonderful place for people to live and one of the residents who was actually uh, a housing organizer arguing that it be, be torn down, uh, making the case that this was designed in the abstract by somebody who didn't actually understand how people use places, which is a critique that a lot of people make about many architects, of course. Um, but that as a consequence, these were buildings that were designed to fail. And that, again, we've got uh, – in this instance, I think we've got sort of the awareness that we have created in many of these places um, literal physical impediments to people's ability to – uh, find a job, for example, right? So, so if you look at, uh, oddly enough, a movie called Candyman, right? A horror movie about, a, uh, turns out a former slave who was buried on a, a site of a Chicago housing project who, if you say his name three times in the mirror, rises up and kills you. Um, that winds up actually being a, a, a movie about geographic isolation, the ways in which those housing projects were built in order to keep them away from middle class white communities. And, you know, if you've ever seen overhead aerial pictures of, of Chicago, Chicago housing projects, they're not only isolated from the central city themselves, but often literally built in the middle, surrounded by highway systems, so that they are literally physically isolated from the rest of the world, from the rest of their city, from all of the things that might 
make being not poor more possible. Um, and these are sort of a, a couple of movies that in one way or another seem to sort of be aware of that. They acknowledge it. They recognize it. And um, other than than The Architect and Candyman that I would both actually heartily recommend, um, there's a documentary that may be more familiar to folks called The Pruitt-Igo Myth, uh, which uh, for folks who, who teach this stuff, I think might be especially useful in the classroom. I think it is in some ways the most sophisticated analysis of where large-scale public housing projects come from um, in terms of sort of social and political economy and why they ultimately fail that I think you're likely to find on film. So it's not all bad. Not everything out there is terrible. Um, so then in the book, you move into an area that I think is getting increasing uh attention nowadays um, where it hasn't in a lot of ways is rural poverty. And one of the things I took away from that is that there's not a lot of depictions in Mm -hmm. the movies about rural poverty. So I was wondering if you could talk more about that. Sure. And there's not. And, and, um, you know, I think may, may, arguably the most famous movie about poverty, Grapes of Wrath, is about that kind of rural poverty. Uh, and there are a handful of, I think, terrific recent uh, independent films. Uh, Frozen River, excuse me, Winter's Bone, uh, Wendy and Lucy, uh, an even smaller and more obscure movie called Ballast. Um, but not too many in between there. But there is a pattern to those those movies that I think does bear on that particular moment, um, and that is that um, if you are seeing poverty depicted on film, it is overwhelmingly likely to be in the cities, despite the fact that uh, for a while now, right, there's more poverty outside of metropolitan areas than there actually is within them. Um, still, if you're going to see poor people, you're most likely to see them in cities, and they are most likely to be African-American. If you do see portrayals of rural poverty, they are almost exclusively whites. And those films are almost all radically more thoughtful, more sympathetic, giving us much more three-dimensional, complex, nuanced portraits of the people that they're attending to. Um which I think is fascinating. I think arguably not surprising. It's not something I necessarily intended to find. But I mean, I, I, I think that it is possible that you know, white supremacy is so deeply rooted into all of our culture that it so deeply permeates even those folks who are interested in offering thoughtful complicated portrayals of marginalized populations and that they wind up turning to whites as a way to do that. Um, I'm not accusing those filmmakers of being racist necessarily. I am noting the pattern and suggesting that the fact that if I'm right, that this large scale pattern really does hold up over time. And then you're much more likely to find negative portrayals of poor African-Americans than you are of poor whites. And that, that this rural poverty that is, it really has produced some extraordinary movies um, is overwhelmingly white. And then again, if we think about the present moment, right. And, and think about, you know, comparisons that people are making between uh, public attitudes and policy solutions to the crack epidemic of the 1980s and the opioid crisis today, the first of which was principally identified as black, the current one principally identified as white. Uh, and the fact that the former was treated as a criminal justice matter and the current one is being treated as a uh, medical or mental health matter. I mean, again, I think that that, that adds to the accumulating pile of evidence that the scale and scope of the racial problem that we continue to f- confront in the country wends its way so deeply into all aspects of our life that we are surrounded by it, even when we go off to the movies. So then in in your book, you move on to um, different ways that we see uh, poverty being portrayed in terms of um, you bring up Teresa Gowan's work about, um, you know, there's the moral failure story, uh, which you've touched on. Uh, there's the addiction, mental illness, r- reasoning. 
Um, and then finally we get to the social and economic reasoning. Um, but here you develop um, four categories as a way to think about these um, portrayals. So I was hoping you could elaborate on that. Sure. Um, and mostly because, because I found some inescapable alliteration um, and it's sort of, it, it's, this is the second half of the book and I turn my attention uh, less away from, from poor places and the people in them uh, to people who in one way or another do not have a, a permanent or sufficient uh, home for themselves. Uh, and those four categories for me are they're either villains, victors, victims, or vaudevillians. And that is they are either villains, they are either a threat and a danger. And to my mind, that's the, the, the largest of those categories. Homeless people are disproportionately threats and threats to the upper classes often. Uh, they are victors. They are, oh, think about uh, Will Smith in Pursuit of Happiness, right? This, this, this story about, again, try hard enough. Uh, do everything within your power, and no matter how bad your circumstances, you can always rise above it. Uh, if they're not that, they are victims, and that is uh, pitiable, pathetic, hopeless, helpless, uh, people without agency and often without uh, dimension. And then sort of finally for me, they're, they're, and this is, I think, the smallest category in, in an interesting kind of way, uh, folks to be laughed at or mocked. Uh, and there are a handful of movies that actually try to sort of get some uh, comic distance out of uh, homeless people. And they tend with, I would argue, the exception of Steve Martin's The Jerk, uh, they all tend to fail pretty miserably at doing that. Across all of those uh, sort of categories, I guess the, the, the pattern that pops up for me over and over and over again is that regardless of what that individual portrayal winds up looking like, even movies that present themselves as concerning themselves with homeless people, with homeless men, let's be honest, there are very few representations of homeless women and even fewer of homeless women with children on film, despite the fact that that's, of course, the largest group of homeless people in the United States, families with kids, um, that, that even if they're pretending, presenting themselves as being concerned about homeless men, closer examination typically suggests that that's not actually what the narrative of the movie is most concerned about. Um, if you think of, if you know uh, The Fisher King, the movie with Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges going back a bit, or more recently, uh, it's a movie called The Soloist with Jamie Foxx as a homeless Juilliard musician living on the streets of L.A. and Robert Downey Jr., who plays a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, who, who comes across. And even if you look at the marketing materials for that movie, it seems to be, it's a movie about the homeless guy, right? Jamie Foxx is, is the lead. But if you watch the movie and pay attention to the way in which sort of where the camera focuses and how the narrative unfolds and what's at the center of the story, the Jamie Foxx character, he is a tool. He is a means towards someone else's ends. The movie is, in fact, most concerned with the white guy. It's most concerned with Robert Downey Jr. and with how intervening to help save this poor, mentally ill, homeless man He's going to uh, help his career at the paper. He's going to repair his relationship with his son. And he's going to help mend his marriage. So this becomes a way in which uh, homeless people are tools often for another character's redemption or salvation. And that is a thread that, for me, permeates all four of those categories. Whatever the movie is is presenting itself, however they're sort of, of framing the particular homeless character, that homeless character is very rarely, in actual fact, at the center of the narrative. They are an afterthought. They are secondary. They are tools. They are, are something we're going to use in order to redeem ourselves. And it's sort of, I, I talk about redemption because this for me really does sort of, of echo an awful lot of very old, you know, sort of Calvinist and other kinds of religious thinking, right? The idea that the poor are put here on earth 
so that we may help them, not because helping people is good and right and morally just, but because helping them is the way that we demonstrate our own worthiness, and that's the path toward our salvation. So for me, sort of throughout that entire section, uh, over and over again, over again, that's the, the piece that pops up for me. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting analysis. Thank you. Um, another way that you mentioned briefly and you talk about more in your book is this idea of uh, the homeless being used to play for laughs. Um, one of the movies that you picked up here that I didn't see it was a little left field for me was Zoolander, actually, um, and how it's a, it's actually quite self-aware, you know, in its portrayal of the derelict line, if you're familiar with the movie. Yeah. But I was hoping you could talk more about that. So Zoolander is one of the other uh, exceptions and arguably, right, sort of all of the, the movies about Charlie Chaplin fall into this exception about playing, you know, homelessness for a laugh and it not being excruciatingly awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, I actually think Zoolander winds up uh, succeeding pretty well in part. And again, if you if, if you know the movie, it's a it's a send up of, of high fashion supermodels and it winds up being part sort of that and part James Bond flick. Uh, but toward the end of it, we get uh, the chief villain, and he is a Bond villain in lots of ways, winds up, uh, and a fashion designer too, obviously, uh, winds up uh, releasing this line uh, that he calls derelict, right? The idea is that uh, it's a satire of the fashion industry. Uh, and the, the, I'm trying to remember sort of the language that he uses. It's a, it's a fashion. It's a, uh, a way of life inspired by the very homeless and vagrants and crack whores that make this wonderful city so unique. Um, and it becomes sort of this parade of, uh, you know, sort of cardboard boxes that turn into dresses and vice versa. And, you know, the joke, and I think they pull it off, is that there is something so sort of cynical and crass about the image making of this particular industry that there is nothing that they will not exploit if they think that it can put a dollar in their pocket. Um, and I mentioned sort of in passing that uh, there were a number of years later, uh, Christian Dior actually had a spread in W Magazine um, in which one of their models was poised on a bench uh, made to appear as if she were homeless himself. So in some ways, sort of Zoolander was was hitting on the kind of the, the cynicism and the exploitation uh, that that can be found um, of, of people who are thought of as other, right, who aren't thought of as fully human. So sort of elaborating more on this idea of the portrayal of homeless, you um, pick up on the, what you call the imposter tramp. And so this is sort of the idea that, um, you know, often there aren't many portrayals of uh, poor or homeless people, but when there are, they're often pretending or it's just temporary. So I was wondering if you could talk more about that. So, uh, so examples of what I'm talking about there. Um, if you're thinking of earlier movies, if you know My Man Godfrey or Sullivan's Travels, um, or Gold Diggers of 1933, or Oliver Twist, um, or more recently, My Own Private Idaho. Um, those are all movies that, that sort of present themselves as being about, you know, homeless men, or in the case of Oliver Twist, orphans. Uh, but if you know those movies, you know that we learn somewhere throughout the course of that movie that that central character is not, in fact, a hobo, a bum, a vagrant, or an orphan, but is either in disguise, right? Sullivan's Travels is about uh, a Hollywood movie director who disguises himself as a homeless man in order to travel the country and gather material for his film. Um, Oliver Twist, right, one of the most famous orphans on film, um, of course, winds up coming, he just sees he actually is of noble birth and comes into his inheritance at the end. Um, just, you know, seems to me, um, again, part of this, this fascinating pattern, it seems to me, of, of, of movies that would have you believe that they are giving you images and portrayals and telling you the stories of poor and homeless people. But often they're not. And it's another way where if you look a little bit more closely, you discover that's not really who's at the center of that story. It's not really a homeless guy. It's not really an orphan. So even when we think we are learning something about those worlds by watching a movie, we're often not. We're learning something about yet what other rich people think about what that experience is like. 
Um, so then you sort of move into the depiction of poverty, um, especially through the depress- depression era, excuse me. Um, and I thought that this was really interesting because you titled the chapter Forgotten Men. And so I was hoping you could talk more sort of about um, the depression era and, you know, um, means tested programming and, and those depictions. I mean, you know, when I when I set out on this project, it, it, one of my frustrations was, um, you know, and as part of, of sort of work on my second book, I was looking for for writing about these kinds of, of cultural portrayals and was coming up with almost nothing other than the occasional article or book chapter written about uh, uh, poverty in the Great Depression in the 1930s. Um, and that really is, with a couple of exceptions here and there up until this book, at least as I would have you believe it anyway, uh, really very little done by way of trying to sort of systematically make sense of, of these kinds of images. And, you know, I, I, I expected that what I would find was something distinct about those portrayals in the 1930s, right? A lot of what we, um, hear from even our better histories of the period is the sense that, Pain and suffering was so widespread that a lot of the more modern and and in and, and earlier eras uh, urge to uh, blame people for their poverty, to look down upon people as poor, um, gave way a bit because we understood that that you know the the 30s helped us understand that the economy was this giant awful thing that could make our lives miserable and that in some ways we would be helpless to fight against it. There is some of that in the 30s to be sure, but I was struck by um, how little attention when all is said and done there was to those moments in the Depression and sort of another you know, sort of curious fact moving on to a, a, a chapter later on in the book. Um, some of those more thoughtful uh, and, you know, to my mind, sort of, of historically three-dimensional portrayals of what was going on in the period are made by later filmmakers, not by filmmakers in the 30s or immediately after in the 40s, uh, and often feature uh, a young girl or boy at the center of the story, right? So if you think Paper Moon is probably the, the most famous of that, or the, you have kids, you may have read uh, the Kit Kittredge books or seen the Kit Kittredge American Girl movie uh, that's set in the Depression. You get these, by and large, really sort of thoughtful... Uh, King in the Hill is another terrific one in that category um, that that show us what was going on in the world uh, through what I refer to as the eyes of a clever child, the idea that that we sort of see the real complexity of what was going on in a lot of those movies... Uh, because they they are are, are are focused on kids who are transient, who are moving around the country, often with their parents in search of work or searching for their parents, we wind up meeting lots and lots and lots of people under very different kinds of circumstances. So you really do almost get this catalog of American experience of the 1930s through that sort of tiny set of films. And that's not something that I wind up seeing uh, in other places. So I guess that, that is a way to argue against myself a little bit, in which we do see see something distinct going on in the 1930s or going on in movies made in later periods about the 1930s. So then you sort of move into these four categories um, that you you mentioned earlier. And the first one you start with is villains. And uh, the movie that I picked up on from this chapter was The Purge, because when I saw The Purge, I thought it was quite self-aware about social issues. Um, and so I was hoping you could talk more about uh, the portrayal of poor people as villains here. Sure. Um, you know, and what uh, a lot of what's going on in that chapter is looking at mostly horror movies in the 1980s in particular. Uh, Scanners, Chud, Prince of Darkness, uh, The Vagrant. There are a whole lot of movies about a homeless guy who sort of uh, worms his way into your life and wreaks havoc on it. Um, and I talk about The Purge sort of in the context of those movies in which we get the homeless guy who is, by him entering into your life, he is going to upend it, and it will wind up being ugly and violent and bloody. And I do think there's a little. I don't. I don't. I don't know that I want to describe the purge as being self-aware. I think the purge is one of those movies that wants to be thought of as socially conscious, but I don't think is thinking deeply enough about what's going on in the film 
to succeed at that. And that, again, in the most simple kinds of ways, it is the entry of the homeless guy, right? It's one night a year. Uh, you can kill anybody you want and there's no penalty for it. Uh, the family at the center of the first movie locks themselves in because they don't want any part of this in order to be safe and secure. Homeless guys being pursued runs up to their door. There's a little bit of a debate about whether to live, let him in or not. Uh, and we sort of see some dialogue that pops up in lots and lots and lots of movies in which people debate whether he is, in fact, sort of should be treated as human or not. They ultimately open the door, let him in, and then that's the movie. That's the hell that they have let themselves in for. So in that regard, it fits, you know, sort of pretty cleanly into that pattern, right? The the homeless person is going to uh, make your life bloody and violent and awful. Um, so then you move into the category of victors, and here uh, you bring up a lot of movies that I think people have probably seen, like uh, Pursuit of Happiness, you know, these sort of big box office movies, and you bring home the point that, like, these are, like, inspirational, right? So people pick themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, so I talked about Pursuit of Happiness a little bit. Um, Homeless to Harvard is is one that I think is it's a made-for-television movie. Um, based on a true story about a young woman who, who winds up, um, sort of, 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 uh, her parents, uh, are, are, uh, mentally ill and drug addicted respectively. Uh, and she nonetheless winds up sort of, of clawing her way up and, and enrolls in Harvard and winds up going on to be a big success. Um, true story that happens, that's real. Um, part of what, and, but again, you know, for me that, 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 that is being, that fits in with this larger sort of pattern of telling us stories in which if people rise out of poverty, it's because they have the ability to do it. And what they need to do is to decide it and then to work hard enough to achieve it. Uh, one of the things that we learn a little bit from the movie, but also by reading the memoir upon which the movie is based, is that this young woman was a bit of a savant. I mean, she wound up finishing high school in, I want to say, like 13 months when she finally got there. It's not to say she didn't work hard and that she didn't earn her success, but it is also to say that she was the exception rather than the rule, right? That she was not some ordinary kid. Uh, what we don't have are movies of all of those other homeless kids who don't have those particular kinds of advantages, who don't have sort of the stars line up in precisely the right way that gives them those kinds of, of options. I, I thought that was really interesting, um, especially given what we know from the structural issues um, that are researched in, in sociology. But um, so then you move into the category of victims. And I have to tell you that Groundhog's Day is one of my favorite all time movies. And it made me a little sad as a sociologist to have that pointed out that, yeah, here, even in this movie, uh, you know, the, I mean, I went and saw the Broadway play or musical, too, and they have the same story there where the the homeless man in the story is not, you know, you're not really told his story, but he's used as redemption for the main character. So I was hoping you could talk more about um, this portrayal of victims. Well, I mean, you know, and I think for Groundhog Day, you sort of you're, you hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, that's the sort of the larger pattern that for me seems striking um, is that, you know, we know nothing about uh, this man who is asking for change on the street. Um, and I, I'm assuming lots of people know the movie, right? Bill Murray cycles through the same day. Um, I saw an article once actually suggesting that it could be 10,000 or hundreds of thousands of times. Um, if you, if you're one of the people who thinks way too much about that sort of thing, and it's an argument that holds up pretty well. Um, and you know, he's, he, the first time he meets him, uh, he, you know, walks by him and ignores him as people often do. Uh, but he, it becomes a movie about how is Bill Murray going to win the girl? And part of how he decides that he's going to win the girl is that he is going to make her believe that he is moral and upright, right? And we can conclude that he does in this process of pretending to be moral and upright become moral and upright. But again, we've got this, this character who exists only so that as Murray advances, he can adjust the way that he interacts or treats that man. So he again, he becomes the tool that that kind of character is not uh, central to the story. The filmmakers don't give a damn about him. Uh, he is there not quite as a joke, but as a plot device. 
And, and, you know, I think that, that again, as I talked about, uh, some of the other instances, the soloist and the Fisher King, um, but there's, there's a very long list of, of movies in that chapter that I think sort of fit into that. And again, this is where you were talking about sort of your own, uh, sort of what disappointment or surprise at, at reading that analysis. But I mean, I think that's, that's how deep this stuff is, right? And this, you know, I think this happens anytime you sort of look deeply at anything. Um, that is is around us, you realize that there are messages that are being communicated in these ostensibly you know, neutral pieces of entertainment that in ways that I don't think we as social scientists have the tools to fully comprehend are having effects, I think it's fair to hypothesize, on our politics, on policy, on the ways in which we think about the world, on the ways in which we think about these kinds of populations. And again, if there were more variety in these kinds of portrayals across film, I think I would be less troubled by it. But seeing what, for me, are these consistent negative patterns repeated over more than a century, it does cause me some concern about about how we identify the effects of that on, you know, our particularly retrograde policy when it comes to homeless people in particular. And again, what do we do about that? Right. What is what what's the next steps? How do we how do we circumvent that? How do we undermine it? Uh, and I, I think that leads really well into this um, chapter about women and children last that you have, because, I mean, that's one of the points that you make is that we don't have many portrayals. And I think thinking if I had to, to quickly think back about the whole book, I think the most uh, that women show up is in like the welfare queens and the social workers and kind of what we talked about earlier with what is that portraying? So I was wondering, you know, there's the the Bechdel test that, you know, um, you can take any movie and see if the main characters, are, if any of them are even women, and then are they even talking about anything other than men? Um, and so I thought that that was a really interesting chapter. Um, and I've actually struggled to to sort of come up with a you know sort of a, a poor and homeless equivalent to to a Bechdel test, right? How would we identify a movie that that at least uh, satisfied whatever my ephemeral demands are for for authenticity are and I was unable to come up with something as as sort of you know I mean useful as the Bechdel test although keeping in mind that's a pretty minimal threshold that we've got in front of us here um you know I mean I think you know it's it's you know and again the the, the larger argument I'm making here is that we don't often see uh women uh poor women on film even though since, I mean, literally since the Middle Ages, right, women are significantly more likely to be poor than men for a whole host of reasons. And that has always been true. That continues to be true. They're more likely to be homeless. Um, why then are, are, are they so hard to find in movies? Um, and I think part of the answer to that is simply why women, period, are harder to find in movies, right? That this is, um, you know, a, a, a Laura Mulvey years ago talked about uh, the male gaze, right? That that movies were by and large made by men for men. And, you know, the argument that I make is that movies also have a property gaze, right? They are made uh, by people with means for other people of means, and they tend to exclude the other groups of people because they're not thinking of it. Well, both of those things are true, right? It's changing, and it is changing for the better. There are more women and there are more people of color involved behind the scenes in Hollywood and independent filmmaking on television, but they are still very much the minority, and they are still you know, sort of fighting to, to get roles and to get legitimacy. Uh, I mean, how much of the, the coverage of Wonder Woman over the, the, the past summer was, you know, sort of this, this surprise that a film directed by a woman would be this giant box office smash as if somehow, you know, her, her, her gender makes it surprising that she has talent and nobody ever said that out loud that way. But that was the subtext, right? That, that, wow. But 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 she's female. How can that be? Um, so I think that that same dynamic, right, that sort of male dominated industry winds up playing about here. And they're just less interested in stories about women and they're less interested in sort of examining uh, the life experience of women and children, because historically men have been less responsible for for children. So they wind up it's you know out of sight, out of mind. Right. It's not it's not in their it's not in their purview, so it winds up being uh, exceedingly rare. And a lot of the occasions where I do find portrayals of women with children in particular, 
um, are made for television movies. A lot of these are literally lifetime movies. And I think part of what's going on there is that there are more women producers and directors in television than there are in film. And that in a place like Lifetime, there's simply more opportunity for women to be in decision-making positions and positions of power. Um, so they've got more space there to be able to tell stories that might interest them. Some of those movies, I should point out, really are terrific. There's uh, a couple in particular, one called God Bless the Child and another called First, Last, and Deposit that I think are really quite lovely portrayals of what the actual experience of, of being a woman with children living in shelters or homeless on the street actually looks like and, and does something else we don't see often, which is show us what that decline into homelessness looks like. So sort of to conclude, um, in your, you sort of touched on this a little bit, but the idea that you bring up of the property gaze, and I thought it was really interesting in the conclusion how you touch on, you know, basically the objectification of poor and homeless people and this idea that, you know, um, that their homelessness or their poverty is the only thing about them, like that their character is very flat and it's that one thing that matters. And so I was hoping you could sort of bring it all home for us. Uh, oh dear, no pressure. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, if a character in a movie is poor or homeless, that's the only thing about them that matters. And the thing that, and that, you know, that troubles me and it bothers me as someone who's, you know, has devoted both his sort of practice and his academic work to um, not just understand, but to try to advocate on behalf of those populations. Um, the thing that gives me hope is that I think about this in the context a little bit of portrayals of gay and lesbian characters in the past. And, you know, we absolutely still have a long way to go, but we now live in a world in which there's a pretty broad range of gay and lesbian and now increasingly even transgender characters, uh, still almost nothing by way of bisexual characters unless there are women there for the titillation of men. Um, but but there's a much broader palette there that is available to us. So if a character in a movie is gay, that's not necessarily the only thing about him or even the most important thing about him. It can be now ancillary. It can be a thing that's there along with his height and weight and where he lives and how he dresses and where he went to school. If we can do that, for that particular population, it gives me a little bit of hope that perhaps if we become more attuned to these patterns, uh, we can do something about offering richer and more complicated portrayals of poor and homeless people as well. Well, thank you again so much, Stephen, for being here today and talking to me about your book. Uh, thank you, Sarah. It was my pleasure. 